going to be reading in John 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who had baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming down here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we met, um, where we must worship, is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for your salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship the Spirit in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? 
I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever had a chance encounter with someone that completely changed your life. Ted Williams was a homeless man in Ohio, and there he was on the street when a local sports reporter walked past and heard him speak and noticed his voice and then found out Ted knew a bit about basketball, and then one thing led to another. And Ted was offered a two-year contract with all living expenses to be the next NBA sports announcer. Simple moment, simple encounter, and his life was never the same. 2,000 years ago, a woman from Samaria was walking to a well. Normal day, just getting water. And there, a chance encounter with the man Jesus Christ completely changed her life. And as we eavesdrop in on this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman around what I call the old school water cooler, a well, we're going to see that it changes not only her life, but your life too. It begins with Jesus asking a very simple question. So it seems, will you give me a drink? It's not so simple because the woman's response, verse 9, what does it say? You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, to understand that why, why do Jews not associate with Samaritans? You need to understand that Samaritans, they lived up north from Judea, and they had interbred with foreigners. They were half-breeds in the Jewish eyes. Uh, They were separate, not to be associated with. And so much so that they'd set up their own temple in Mount Gerizim where they would worship God. Great segregation. Think U.S. before the 1960s. Segregation, black and white. Should be a picture on the screen of bubblers, white, coloured. That's the kind of separation, segregation. It's as if Jesus was going up to an African-American woman at a bubbler and saying, can I drink from your water bottle? that you just filled up. Jesus, in a simple question, completely ignores the social and racial barriers. He was not hostage to the sexism of his day. Even though he knew comments were coming, like, why is he talking to her? He still asks this question. 
Because when God said in Genesis 1 that he made male and female in his image, that every single person, man and woman, have dignity and value and worth. He not only said it, but when God came to earth, he lived it. And this encounter with this woman shows it. That we don't want to resort to flimsy arguments like, well, it's 2020 already. No, no, no. God said man and woman are equal. Said it and lived it. Now, it's easy to think what this woman has to offer Jesus. She's got a bucket. It's a hot day. But Jesus flips it. He says he has actually something to offer her. So have a look, verse 10. Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is asking there in a way, do you see who's before you? That I'm not just an ordinary Jew who's breaking down some barriers. But as a gift of God before you and he has to offer you living water. Now, this woman can't see that. At this stage, she's blind, right? But you see that in a response. Because verse 11 says, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? If you remember last week with uh, John 3, Nicodemus, where Nicodemus asked, How can I be born again? I mean, I'm a grown man. I ain't entering my mum's tummy. She would not be down with that, right? This woman is saying, Jesus, you've got no bucket. And unless you've got go-go gadget arms, you ain't going to get that water from the bottom of this well. They're thinking physical, but Jesus is thinking spiritual. Jesus says, everyone, verse 13, who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life couple of things about this living water. By the time we get to John 7, we find out this living water is the Holy Spirit. But in drinking this water, it says you will never thirst. It will always satisfy you. It will quench that thirst and that yearning, the yearning of your souls that all of us have. And notice, it becomes a spring of water. That's why you don't thirst again. It's not that one drink of God is enough. No, no, no. It becomes a one true drink produces a well of eternity of Sips and drinks. And this woman, like most of us, say, I'd like that. Yeah, I would like that water that really quenches the thirst that we all have. I'm down with that. Where do I go? Which well? Where do I buy? Yes. It's interesting. I don't know if you ever watched Dano's direct infomercials, but some of them seem too good to be true. You know, the ones where you stand on a little pedal and you just do this and then a six pack? Or the ones where you just drink this powdered water and the, me- the fat just melts away like butter in a microwave. You think, I, I could do that. It's so easy, so simple. But Jesus doesn't offer this woman, even though she wants this living water, three easy payments. But he doesn't also just give it to her. You notice that? He doesn't say, well, here it is. No, no, he gets personal. He says, go call your husband. She's like, uh, I've got no husband's. Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husbands. The fact is, you have five, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you say is quite true. All of a sudden, what was originally thought as a chance encounter, a fluke, a random run-in at the well, becomes very intentional. 
because Jesus knows her. He knows her past. He knows her present. He knows her private life. And he knows it with surprisingly good accuracy. Five husbands. Number six, de facto. He knows her because he made her. And Jesus, friends, knows you. He knows you. Not just your hobbies, whether you like Vegemite or not, but you, warts and all. Your past, your present, your private life. The things that you've done that you're ashamed of, that you want to suppress. He knows everything you've done with surprisingly good accuracy. That thing that you would like to hide, he knows, and he knows how many times you've done it. Now that will terrify you. Because if someone had that kind of information on you, it will terrify you. Because what are they going to do? They're going to expose you? Social media? Tell your spouse? Put, tell your boss? What, what are they going to do with this kind of information? It will terrify you until you understand who's before you. It will terrify you until you understand who this Jesus Christ is. Why does Jesus bring this up? Why does he get personal? He exposes the problem to this woman because he loves her. He actually cares about her. He knows the shame that this woman carries. I mean, she's coming to the well at midday. No woman did that. You'd go in the morning or the afternoon, not in the heat of the day. She knows the loneliness and the shame she carries, but Jesus is there not to expose it more, to shame her, but to expose it so she can see the alternative solution of what she truly needs. This woman is thirsty. Not physical thirst. No, no, no. She's thirsty. And you and I, oh, we are thirsty. For this woman, she believes the thing that will quench, will satisfy her, will complete her, this longing that she has, is a man, a relationship. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, is a very helpful verse to deepen our understanding of this passage. It's on the screen. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What it's saying there is the very problem that this woman and every single one of us has is this. We've rejected the living water that can only come from God. The sense that we get our meaning, our purpose, our satisfaction and fulfillment from him, this living, life-sustaining water, we've rejected that and we turn around and we dig our own little puddles. We dig our own little buckets and think, this will sustain me. This will completely. This will fill me. Went to the beach the other day with my kids and there at Balmoral, you see, look out and there's massive amounts of water. And it's just, you know, this is just a bay. It's not even the real deal out in the great ocean. But there's this, I'm thinking like the litres and litres and litres of the seawater out there. But we, particularly my son Thomas and I, would dig a little beach, dig a little hole. There's no water in it. So we go to the bucket, get a bucket, fill it up, pour it in. And it's full for a moment. Then it goes, empties. So what do we do? Like any two-year-old, more. So we do more. Fill it up, go back, fill it up. And it goes. And do it again and again and again and again. It's never going to be full. It's always going to evaporate. Why? Because it's a broken system. 
something we've dug that's never going to hold the water that the ocean will hold. And I don't think it's an accident that the thing that Jesus identifies in this woman's life is her relationships. The romance, the longing of a man. Because people are such common puddles that we build for ourselves. Whether it's a romantic relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, where we expect him or her to completely fulfill you in life. Whether it's children, and we say things, I cannot live without my children, we're placing our meaning and drawing it from them. Whether it's friends or work and it's being consumed, the longing of their approval, what are they thinking, what are they thinking? Or whether it's a sexual encounter saying, I need to have that met to have a meaningful life. And in the end, these are fake living waters. They are broken buckets. They are puddles that we have made. And they cannot hold this life-sustaining water that we want them to hold. But we still go back for more and more and more. And we wonder why we are thirsty. And in the end, we either crush them or we ourselves are crushed. In the case of the Samaritan woman, she just churns through them. One man, not enough, next. One man, not enough, next. And so thirsty are we that sometimes we do things that we would not normally do. We would do things we'd not set out to do in our thirst, in our desire to quench our thirst. So some of us have dabbled in sexual experiences again and again and again, whether it's one-night stands, whether it's prostitution, whether it's adultery, whether it's pornography, this sort of thirst, this hunger we spent hundreds of hours trying to quench our thirst and it is not being met. Some of us have engaged in alcohol and drugs or maybe it's to gossip and gambling to quench the thirst again and again and again and it has left us parched dry but we go back into these puddles and try and get more and more and more. Whatever the thing is that is rising up in your mind that you're thinking of, I wonder if this quote from Jonathan Grant resonates with you. It says, At the beginning, it, whatever you think about, promises total satisfaction at no personal cost. It presents the illusion that we are in full control, but unable to fulfill us. It draws us further in and requires more and more with every encounter. In the end, having us promised us everything at no cost, the false promise ultimately takes everything. It controls us. It's become our master. Jesus, in raising what he knows about this woman, indeed you, he does it to show you how trapped, enslaved we are, how thirsty we are, and that we go looking for that thirst in all the wrong places. He brings it up not to shame you. He brings it up because he loves you and he wants you to experience a freedom, a power, a love that is found nowhere else. Now, here's the thing. Often at this point, when things get a bit personal, we can naturally feel a bit uncomfortable. And some of you are probably feeling a bit uncomfortable at this moment. And typically, particularly as Australians, what we'd love to do at this point is change the subject, mainly talk about the weather. Oh, the weather, El Nino, summer's cancelled too. It's just, we just sort of default, right? Spot, spotlight of us. Oh, we'll change to other topics. We'll say, what do you think about Trump? You know, what do you think about the uh, science and creation? Whatever it is, just something else. And interestingly enough, this is what this woman does. 
Because verse 19, she says, Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Change the subject. Verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship in Jerusalem. In other words, a little test. Uh, what do you think about the ancient disagreement between Jews and Samaritans? But Jesus, notice he doesn't get caught up in it. He doesn't take the bait. In the end, he's saying it doesn't matter where you are, temple or no temple, mountain or, mount, or no mountain, but it is who you worship. Verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshippers must worship in Spirit and truth. What he's getting at there is that we are all worshippers. All of us are worshippers and we generally worship people. But true worshippers are those who worship God the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit, the one who satisfies you, brings this living water, who gives you the power to, to say no to sin and to experience the love of God. And there's that truth that everything else I turn to is a fake, dirty puddle. But the good news is this word seeks in verse 23. The Father seeks. These are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. It's been said the Samaritan woman is the prodigal son of John's gospel. That the father is seeking her with all her mess, all her brokenness. He's seeking her. And so he sends his son, Jesus, to the well to meet her. And there the spirit is working in her life so that she can see who the son is, so that she can know the father. That God is seeking her, and God is seeking you. And this woman is just seeking water, but deep down she's seeking men, but all along God is seeking her. And I don't know why you're here in this room, and I don't know whether you're here online, why you've clicked or why you've sat here, but I know this, it is not a chance encounter. It is not random. But I know that God is seeking you. He is seeking, he knows what you've done, he knows your shame, he knows you're broken, but he is seeking you so that you would know him and truly worship him. This woman is probably getting the gist that Jesus was intentionally trying to find her. But she would have no idea where Jesus was going to go ultimately for her and for you. That he went to that cross. And there on that cross, the topic of thirst came up again because Jesus on that cross, dying a horrendous death, says the words, I am thirsty. And again, someone thought it was literal. They grab a sponge, give him a drink. No, no, no. He is thirsting for what he always had and for the first time went without, the eternal presence of God, the love of his Father. And why does he say those words, I am thirsty? Because there on that cross, he takes on all the sips you've had from dirty puddles, all the broken systems that you find your meaning and fulfillment from, all the sin of adultery, all the sins that you haunt you, that plague you, that you would love to keep under the rug. He takes them on himself and he, the Father turns his face away and he experiences deep thirst. And he did that so that you could be full. You could be quenched. You could be satisfied. You can have the living water, God, the Holy Spirit, live in you. The only way you have access to this living water 
is by Jesus Christ at his expense. But there's something, as a 21st century reader, we often miss about this chapter. It's where this all takes place, a well. Now, we don't think too much about a well. No one need to have wishing wells at wedding, but that's about it. We don't hang around wells much in the 21st century. But in the first century, a well was considered a place where romance happened. I mean, Abraham's servant found Rebecca to be married to Isaac. Uh, Jacob met Rachel at a well. Moses met his wife at a well. It was a place of meeting your spouse. And here this woman was there at a well and meets a man. And the first century thinking, ah, is this the man for him, for her? But in the end, she doesn't meet just a man. She meets the Messiah. Because those words, Jesus says, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. And in that moment, things click. She drops the bucket and she sees that all that she has been longing for in life is right before her, Jesus Christ. That what she needed more was not the arms of a loving bachelor, but the arms of a loving God. And here he was. In my experience, great moments are often ruined by the mundane. And the disciples do exactly that. They enter stage left with lunch. You can almost imagine saying, we got lunch, Jesus. Thomas had a coupon, two for one, kebabs, it's great. And you can just say, what, do you not see what's happening here? The first Samaritan woman has become a follower of Jesus. But it doesn't distract her. She goes off to Samaria to her people. She becomes the first missionary and says, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And many believe that Jesus is the saviour of the world. Friends, two things to end practically. First is this. You will never receive this living water unless you acknowledge where you're currently getting your life-sustaining fulfillment from. What are the puddles in your life? What are the broken buckets that you're holding on to? In this acknowledgement, the Bible basically calls it repentance. Now, repentance is not a crushing thing because this woman knows it's a freeing thing, it's a liberating thing because she says, he told me everything that I ever did. Repentance is not informing God of what you've done. He knows it. In telling God what you've done, you're informing yourself, he still loves me. He still loves me. He knows everything that I've done was surprising, and yet he still loves me and forgives me. And the Christian who does not regularly repent is missing out on experiencing the never-ending love of God. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. To receive this loving water, everything changes in your life. I mean, the fact that those words, she leaves her bucket, is such a significant line. She leaves her bucket. That is her first act of worship as a follower of Jesus. And this woman's greatest worship challenge is you and I greatest worship challenge. Is Jesus enough? Will we be truly satisfied in him and no longer go to stagnant pools? For some of us, when it comes to worship, it means living our buckets that we've gone to and never returning. That might be drugs or alcohol. It might be sex outside of marriage, the consumption of porn, an unhealthy relationship. It might be that, not going back to that. If I go back, it's like toilet water. I can drink it, but it's not going to be good for me. 
For others of us, the things that we worship, the things we go to, we can't chuck them out. Children, family, work, those kind of things. But it's a change in priority. And every time we are tempted to take up that and drink from it, saying this is going to give me identity, purpose, and meaning. No, no, we put that down. We put down that bucket and say, no, no, no. It is only Jesus Christ. He is the only one who will satisfy me. By the power of the Spirit that lives in me, he is the the one that will quench this thirst that is welling up for me. You drink again and again and again. Her worship challenge is our worship challenge. Every day of your week, is Jesus enough? At the beginning, I asked whether you'd had a chance encounter which changed your life. As we've just read John 4, I know that every single one of us in the building or online has had it. Because Jesus meets you where you're at. He knows you through and through. And he wants you. He wants you enough to thirst like no one else has thirst on that cross. And he did it for you. So that you would experience a living water, a satisfaction, a quenching of your souls like nothing else. Let's pray. Lord God, you have come that we might have life and have life to the full. Help us to grasp that Jesus, that you alone have the words of eternal life. You know us, Lord. You know us with surprisingly good accuracy. But nothing and no one can fill the God-shaped holes in our hearts, only you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us that you will quench our thirst, that we would find our satisfaction in you, Lord Jesus, because you alone can satisfy what we truly need.